It is an enormous privilege for me to join you here in Dubai. I've been in this part of the world only a few times, and it's an honor to come back and join with you on this Friday morning <laughs> celebration of the grace of God in the Church of the Redeemer here in this city. Let's bow in prayer. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I hope you'll follow in your Bible, Psalm 40. Sometimes when people read the Psalms, they treat them as if they're individual pearls on a string. So you might have your devotions and read Psalm 3 today, and then tomorrow Psalm 4, and then the next day Psalm 5, and somehow fail to see that some of these Psalms are thematically linked. They're grouped together in a variety of ways. They're not simply individual pearls. In this case, Psalm 37 underscores the importance of waiting on the Lord. Then... In Psalms 38 and 39, the application of this waiting on the Lord is worked out in painful self-examination. And now we come to our psalm, Psalm 40. At least initially, the gloom is lifted. There is a triumphant outcome. David has waited on the Lord, and the Lord has helped him. That brings us to the first of the two divisions of this psalm. First of all, then, joyful praise to God because of his help, verses 1 to 10. These verses can be usefully broken down into four parts. Number one, personal testimony, verses 1 to 3. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see it and fear the Lord and put their trust in Him. There is a kind of outburst of delight. The word patiently in our English translations is perhaps just a bit too weak. I waited patiently. It could be very boring. You sort of, okay, I'll wait. Eventually God will answer. But the notion is, I waited perseveringly. I was determined to look to God, and in due course, He saved me. From what? Well, clearly it's some kind of metaphor. He, he lifted me out of the slimy pit, a miry bog, the images of quicksand or something like it, which casts up images of horror and floundering helplessness. What, what it was, we don't know. It could have been sickness, sin, peril. We, we just don't know. And it's doubtless a good thing that we don't know. Because if we knew exactly what it was that David was referring to, we might think the only way this could apply to us is if we are in exactly the same peril. But because it's hidden by a metaphor then we begin to realize the applicability of this image to many incidences in our lives. 
It's a bit like the thorn in the flesh to which Paul refers in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says he, he prayed diligently for the Lord to take away this thorn in the flesh and, and the Lord, quite frankly, said no. He said something else, as we'll see. But what that thorn in the flesh was, we can't be quite sure. And that too is probably a, a, a good thing because the thorns in the flesh or the miry bogs can come to us in a variety of ways. But David, in any case, has been rescued out of it. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, and he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. Now that wasn't the experience, as I've said, of Paul. If you read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you remind yourself of all the kinds of sufferings Paul faced as a leader in the early decades of the Christian church. Shipwrecks, beatings, hunger, tiredness, betrayal. He was a tough man. But then when you get to chapter 12, he speaks of something that he sees as worse. So whatever that thorn in the flesh was, it must have been pretty miserable. He had prayed for other people and seen some people actually healed. Now he prays for himself three times, which doesn't mean sort of mouthing a few prayers sometime between sipping his orange juice and putting on his socks before he beats out of the door on his way to work. He, he sought the Lord in serious intercession for relief from the thorn, and the Lord simply said, My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. Same God. And sometimes he takes us out of the miry bog and puts our feet in a stronger, safer place. Sometimes he takes away the thorn. And sometimes instead he says, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to give you grace instead. And Paul came so much to appreciate that answer that he actually concluded, I will therefore glory in my weakness that the grace of God, the strength of God may be manifest in me. In David's case here, he does enjoy release. Moreover, when he is released from this miry bog, whatever it is, he directs attention to God. You know, there are some people who get converted or come out of really miserable circumstances and somehow manage to tell their testimony in such a way that it's all about them. You should have seen what a sinner I was. Let me tell you some stories. And, and somehow it's, it's, it's all about them even when they're talking about the grace of God in their lives. But that's not Paul. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in Him. Here is their personal testimony that is turning all attention to God such that others want to join in in praise as well. So there's personal testimony. Second, there's public principle, verses 4 and 5. Now if you look closely, there's a word in the last line of verses 1 to 3 the personal testimony, that is picked up at the beginning of verses 4 and 5. It's the word trust. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in Him, he concludes his personal testimony. And then he universalizes it. Instead of just giving his personal testimony, he extracts a public principle that everyone should learn from the testimony that he has just given. 
Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. You know, when you slink into some kind of miry bog, whatever it is, fiscal disaster, overwhelming guilt, painful cancer, depression. One of the things that happens as you slither down into the slime is that your world collapses. You can't see very far. Your horizon is shortened. It's hard even to see God. When my wife was so ill with cancer, she couldn't read. It's not that she didn't want to read. She didn't have the energy to read. And and she fights things like self-pity. And yet, the world collapses in around her. I read to her and for her. And had to learn too just when to shut up and just be there. But then when you come out the other side, if the Lord does pull you out of the slimy pit and put your feet on a rock, then your vision changes. You, you, you can see things with a, a, a different perspective. And that's exactly David's experience here. Do, do, do you see? He, he extracts the general principle, but, but now... He sees broadly, many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done. The things you planned for us, this was still within your sovereignty. None can compare with you. Write to speak and tell of your deeds. They would be too many to declare. You come out the other side and you you couldn't see a sunset before. You couldn't couldn't smell clean air. You you couldn't rejoice in the day's dawning. You you, you couldn't be satisfied with good food. There was nothing there. It was all shut down. The horizons were limited. And you come out the other side and you start saying, Man, God is good. And He's big. And He's sovereign. And I can trust Him. Many are the things you have done. If I tried to list them, I couldn't even name them all. You know, this theme reminds us of another psalm, a well-known psalm, Psalm 139, another psalm of David. We read Psalm 139, verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. And then these words, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb as I was growing. As a baby in my mother's womb, your sovereign sway was still involved. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Talk about sweeping sovereignty. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Do you see, in the flow of the context, this is not simply saying that God is omniscient, though he is. When he says, how precious to me are your thoughts, how vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. He's saying something more than just God thinks a lot or God knows everything, though that's true. In the flow of the context, all of God's thoughts are the thoughts he had of me numbering all my days before I got there. Do you hear the flow? All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Now here's a vision of the sweeping God who can be trusted. And you begin to see that when you come out the other side of some of these miry pits in which you sink. When you're in them, it's hard to see anything. It's hard. We should see, but sometimes we don't. And coming out the other side, you get a renewed vision of this sweeping grace of God whose sovereignty extends even to the time when we sink into the bog. And it's not as if he was caught, surprised by the bad luck that fell you. No, no, no. They were numbered already these days. So there's personal testimony, then there's public principle, and then third, there's personal self-dedication, verses 6 to 8. What is the only proper response to a deliverance such as this? Now put yourself in David's place, about 1000 BC. Under the Mosaic Covenant. What's the appropriate response? Sacrifice a cow? Offer up a sheep? If your budget's limited, a couple of turtle doves instead? Will that do? Well, God, I thank you. Let's... Let's have a little offering. I'll offer you an animal. Will that do? Well, it may be prescribed, but it's possible to offer up a sacrifice as it's possible to engage in ritual today without it actually touching our heart. And David, seeing this, says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. But my ears you have opened. We'll come back to that expression. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. In other words, the only adequate response of gratitude and adoration to the God who pulls us out of the miry pit is that we offer up ourselves. Not just something else, but offer up ourselves. David understood that getting the ritual right 
is never enough. He would have learned that from the experience of his predecessor, King Saul, who was so concerned to get the ritual right and get the sacrifices in place before he faced an alien army that, in point of fact, what he did was disobey God. Now, I acknowledge the second line of verse 6 is difficult to understand. It's worth taking a moment to try. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened, or some of our translations have, but my ears you have pierced, and others have, but my ears you have dug out. What's, what's going on there? Well, one possible way of taking the original Hebrew that was written was, my ears you have pierced. And you ask yourself, what on earth could that mean? Some have suggested that it comes from the ear-piercing ceremony that you find in Exodus chapter 21. That needs a bit of explanation. In the ancient world, people became slaves on occasion for different reasons. Sometimes it was because of the result of a war, or sometimes it was the result of a raiding party, but sometimes it was because there were no bankruptcy protection laws. You borrowed some money, built a business, then the economy went belly up, you lost the money, and you had no choice under law but to sell yourself and perhaps your family to your creditor. In Israel, it didn't work exactly the same way as in the surrounding nations. You really didn't become a slave in a full-born sense. Rather, you became a kind of indentured servant. That is, it was supposed to last for so many years. And at the end of seven years, then, then you were supposed to be set free again. But supposing you sold yourself to a master who proved to be quite good. He provided you with a good place to live and you and your family were safe and secure and you had honorable work and and, uh, you you got along really well together. And and then you come to the end of the seven years and he's he's going to set you free. And you look around and the economy's got 30% unemployment. Being set free doesn't look like a good deal. So there was a provision made. It was called the ear-piercing ceremony. You went with your master to the door of the house, and he took the lobe of your ear and put it against the door of the house and took a sharp awl and pierced it against the door of the house, which was a way of saying, by your choice, now you belong to this house. Now, at that point, he became no longer an indentured servant, but a permanent slave. So some have said, maybe that's the image that the psalmist is using here. My ear you have pierced. As if he's saying, I want to be yours unreservedly. I, I, I don't want some sort of temporary arrangement with you. I, I, I want to be yours permanently, your slave. Could be. The trouble is that when this ceremony is described in the ancient world, it's my ear, singular, you have pierced. Whereas this expression is, my ears, plural, you have pierced. Why that? But the same Hebrew verb can mean, can be translated, my ears you have dug. Or we would say in English, my ears you have dug out. And you say, what on earth does that mean? Now if you say, I have no idea what my ears you have dug out means, you never met my mother. 
My mother was born in London. She was a cockney, born within the sound of bow bells. And they had more strange expressions on God's green earth than, than you can shake a stick at. I never did find out where some of them were. She had the rhyming slang when she put it on and so on. And when we were little kids, if she were a bit frustrated with the slowness with which we obeyed, she would say things like, oh, dig out your ears. Now, she was not suggesting we go and take a shovel or even a small spoon and start trying to dig out our... What she was saying was, listen up, open your ears, obey, but pay attention. It's a colorful metaphor, but it's pretty obvious what it means, isn't it? So my ears you have dug out may simply mean um, you've enabled me to hear. Now, one of the things that's really interesting is that same language. It's not the same verb, but the same thought is used in, the, in, in Isaiah, the prophet, to talk about the servant of the Lord. Here is Isaiah 50, talking about the servant of the Lord. The servant says... The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue, Isaiah 50, verse 4, to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. Verse 5, the sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting because the Sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Do you hear that? The Sovereign Lord, the Sovereign, the sovereign Lord has so opened the ears of the suffering servant that the suffering servant, out of obedience to the Sovereign Lord, is resolved to undergo suffering. Even though he gets his beard pulled out and his face slapped and he's spit upon and smeared. He knows that ultimately he'll be vindicated. And he goes through the suffering precisely because his ears are opened. His ears have been cleaned out so that he has a heart to obey God. And any Christian who knows his Bible will inevitably think of the prayers of Jesus in Gethsemane. If it's possible, take away this cup. If not, not my will but yours be done. For Jesus was resolved to listen up to his heavenly Father. And so that's why many of our translations have some sort of paraphrase Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. It's not, not a bad translation. But there's one more difficulty. We, we, should, we, should, we should acknowledge it because, in fact, it has a close bearing on how we understand Christ Jesus. As you know, I'm sure, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew or parts of it in Aramaic, a related language. But when you come to the New Testament era, it's written in Greek. Times have changed and the common language is no longer Hebrew. It's, it's, it's Greek. So the Old Testament was translated into Greek. It was translated into Greek before Jesus came along. So very frequently when the New Testament writers quote the Old, they quote from the translation that everybody's using. 
Sometimes they actually quote from the Hebrew, but they often quote from the translation that everybody's using. Do you know what the Greek actually has here? The Greek translation? We read, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. And you think, whoa, that's a long way from the original. What's going on there? And it's in that form that this passage is quoted in Hebrews 10, which we read earlier on the screen. We'll turn to it ourselves in a moment. And you think, what is going on here? Well, I was brought up in French. I learned English along with French when I was a boy. And because of that, I learned early on that some things can't be literally translated. In English, if I say, <clears throat> I have a frog in my throat, the French side of me is scandalized. You don't speak of frogs in the throat in French. In French, they say, I have the cat in the throat. And if you think it's strange for French Canadians to have cats in their thrones, let me tell you, it's very strange to them to find English speakers with frogs in theirs. <laughs> and I've asked around a number of other languages, and I can't, I, in some languages, I, I can't find any animal that is anybody's throat. I mean, they just don't say things like that, you know? So supposing you've got, you've got the job of translating an original text that says, I have a frog in my throat. Now you've got to translate it into French. What are you going to say? Well, it depends. I mean, you, you could change the wording in order to preserve the fluency of idiom and translate it as, I have a cat in my throat. But suppose the word frog in the context is, is heavily tied up to symbol-laden things, maybe even theological things in the context. You, you don't want to lose the word frog. So you say, I've got a frog in my throat. So you preserved a certain kind of word-for-word -word accuracy, but lost the idiom. And in other cases, you'd lose the accuracy in order to get the idiom. Do, 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 do you see? And, and that, that's why in either case, what you're likely to do as a translator is put a little footnote cue down and go to the bottom of the page and, and, and make an explanation. Now, I can't prove this, but I suspect the translator who is putting this from Hebrew into Greek thought along these lines. My ears you have dug out, or my ears you have pierced, that doesn't make any sense in Greek. You know, you don't dig out ears in Greek. You don't pierce them either. Greeks wanted their bodies intact. It was shameful to mark them up. How am I going to translate that so they'll understand it? But they did understand, this translate, these translators, they did understand that this was David giving himself wholly to the Lord. Whether it's my ears pierced so that I'm his slave forever, or my ears have opened up so that I obey fully, I'm, I'm now completely the Lord's. Do, do, do you see? So to put that rather paraphrastically, um, here's my body, I'm yours. A body you prepared for me, I'm I, I'm yours. And then, conceptually, the thought is rather similar to what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. 
I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to the Lord, which is your spiritual worship. And that brings us to the way this passage is used in Hebrews chapter 10. The words are up on the screen a few minutes ago. Hebrews chapter 10 is summarizing a long argument in the book about how the law with its sacrificial systems and and the like were only shadows. They they, they pointed forward. They were important under the terms of the old covenant, but they were even even more important for for pointing forward to, to what was yet to come. So we read 10.1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? No, 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 no. No, no. It is impossible, verse 4, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. At the end of the day, it's not, it's not an effective sacrifice. Therefore, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, he said, and now this quotation from Psalm 40, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, my God. Now the first thing you want to say is, why is Jesus quoting this? When it's David who says it. The text says that when he came into the world, this is what Jesus said. But it's David who says it. Why? Because so often as you move from the old covenant to the new, you follow along certain trajectories. Some people use the word typologies. There are certain patterns that get repeated and repeated and repeated. We're all familiar with this if we've been reading our Bibles for a while. For example, in the Old Testament, you read of the event of the Passover, the first Passover, where a sacrificial lamb was slaughtered, and the 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 blood of the, 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 the lamb was put on the two doorposts and on the lintel, and the avenging angel passed over, And there was no death in the house. And this came to be celebrated in Israel year after year after year. Every year they celebrated the Passover. They celebrated the Passover. They celebrated the Passover. Year after year, ten years went by. A hundred years went by. A thousand years went by. Until what you really got is a trajectory. You got a pattern. Until you start asking Where's this going? Are we always looking backwards? What happened back there? What's God doing? And then there are various indications in text to show that these patterns are actually not only based on the past, but pointing forward. Until eventually Christ is sacrificed. And the judgment of God passes over his people. Paul sees the connection. And he says, writing to the Corinthians, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. In other words, this is a fulfillment of the pattern. Now one of the patterns that comes along then, a very strong one in scripture, is David himself, the Davidic kingship. 
After all, God had appointed David as king in the nation. And then he said, and, and I'm going to keep renewing this Davidic kingship until the time comes when, when you will see there will never fail to be a Davidic king on this throne. Now, initially, the next generation was just Solomon. Generation after that, it was Rehoboam. There were all kinds of problems and inconsistencies. The kingdom split. People went into exile. Lots of nasty history. But already in the time of Isaiah in the 8th century, in words that we sometimes recite and sing together at Christmas when we, when we listen to Handel's Messiah or, or, or participate in words quoted from Isaiah chapter 9, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. He will reign on the throne of his father David. Of the increase of his kingdom there will be no end. And he will also be called the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. So now you've got a Davidic sonship, a Davidic dynasty established that's pointing forward. Until you have people asking, when is the ultimate David coming? When is the ultimate David coming? So that the things that happened to the first David become a kind of pattern, a kind of type, if you like, a kind of structure that begins to show you what happens to the final David. You, you see what David, the historic David, says in this passage. The intentions are good, but let's be quite frank. David does not always live up to his own intentions, does he? I said, here I am. I desire to do your will, my God, your laws within my heart. Yes, the same David that managed to seduce Bathsheba and off her husband. But the ultimate David says these words perfectly. And that's what took him to the cross. The words of this first David are ultimately fulfilled in the last David. His ears were opened. Hence he came into the world in the incarnation. Hence he went to the cross. And like the suffering servant of Isaiah 50, submitted to torture and death. Not because he deserved it. But to bear in his own body the sins of his people. Out of obedience to his heavenly father. So, here then is not only personal testimony and public principle, but personal self-dedication, which is a picture of the ultimate dedication of Christ himself as he offers himself up to save us. Finally, there's public proclamation in verses 9 and 10. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. That, that means I don't, I don't hide it away, so it's not talked about. There's a sense in which we all need to hide righteousness in our hearts. But there's another sense in which we shouldn't be hiding it away so that we never talk about it. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. In other words, here there is public proclamation. David is now going to talk about his experiences. He's going to talk about how the Lord helped him. I won't hide it away. I'll talk about it. 
Now, I know that the way we talk about ourselves varies enormously from culture to culture. I know that. And it, it varies from denomination to denomination, too. You, you get somebody with a kind of British stiff upper lip tradition from a conservative Presbyterian denomination, from a rather private part of the country where silence is golden, and then give them a dose of disaster. The spouse dies, house burns down, they lose their job. And you say, how's it going, brother? Could be better. wonder if there's life in there, you know? And, and then some years later, the house is rebuilt. They've got a good job. They're happily married. How's it going, brother? Lots to be grateful for. On the other hand, you get somebody from a really expressive culture. I hesitate to name them, but you can think of a few. <laughs> Maybe from a charismatic denomination. In, in a corner of the world where expressiveness is considered honesty. And, and they, they, they develop a small sniffle during the week. And it's testimony time on the Friday service. I've got something to thank God for. I was so sick this week. I felt as if I were at death's door. And the Lord reached down and He healed me. Praise Jesus. And there's a part of me that wants to say, buy a box of Kleenex. <laughs> I, I don't mean to be cynical, but it just seems just a wee bit over the top, you know? Now somewhere between that extreme and this extreme you find David. Because David recognizes his moral, spiritual obligation to express gratitude to God in the great assembly. You who are older Christians, you've been Christians for a while. How will the next generation learn how appropriately to thank God for the vicissitudes of life and the discouragements and the painful times unless you yourself as a, a Christian thanks God publicly in small group and in, in your family devotions and in the great assembly? Do, do, do you see? You, you are passing it on. You are passing on a heritage of, of a proper relationship to God and what gratitude to God looks like, what faith in God looks like when it's articulated. Do you see? And thus the next generation learns how to do it. You don't have the right to sit back and say, well, of course I'm thankful to God. God knows my heart. He knows I'm thankful. Let the young people sort themselves out. If they want to go clappy happy, that's, that's up to them. But for me, I'm just thankful inside. You don't have the right to do that. There is a, an obligation, you see, to, to figure out how appropriately in your subculture to express gratitude and thanks to God in a fashion that brings God the glory and directs things away from yourself. That's what David says here. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. So here is public proclamation. A number of years ago at Trinity, where I teach, we had a student come to us to join us in the PhD program in New Testament. He... Uh, 
He was a missionary. He went out single, we'll call him Robert. He, he went out single to Bolivia, which is a Spanish-speaking nation in Latin America uh, with a lot of short people. And he was about, he, 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 was, he was pressure close to two meters. He, he, was, he was a tall man. Thin as a rake, and he went out single. He learned the language well, became a really effective missionary, training pastors, planting churches. Eventually met a woman missionary out there, and they got married rather late in life and had a little girl. And the mission board decided to send him back to Trinity to get a PhD in New Testament so that he could return to Bolivia and be used of God to train up a whole new generation of pastors. So they came to Trinity. He buckled in. Six months into the program, his wife was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. He withdrew from the program for a while as they looked after her, double mastectomy, chemo, all the miserable things. After six or nine months, he came back into the program, looking after her a bit on the side, but plugging on. Then he was diagnosed with advanced stomach cancer. There are a lot of good cancer hospitals in the Chicago area, but they all told him he should go hospice. The mission tried one more thing. They sent him up to the Mayo Clinic, which is one of the best diagnostic centers, of course. And they said, we're not promising anything, but we do have some experimental drugs that are really used for colon cancer and things like that. We've never tried them on stomach cancer, but he had 90% of his stomach taken out surgically. Then they put him on these drugs. That meant that he was eating little, but often. He thought he was thin before. He was skinny as a beanpole. But after six months, he came back to Trinity, working on his PhD in order to serve God back in Bolivia. Six months later, his wife's cancer came back, and she died. Robert disappeared for a while. All this time he was well supported by folks at Trinity in his local church, by the mission board. There were lots of Christians that were helping. Boy, those are rough things to go through just the same. Then he came back to Trinity, finished his Ph.D. When he arrived, his little girl was three and a half. When his little girl was now nine and a half and without a mother... Robert came and spoke in our church before returning with his daughter to Bolivia. And for 40 minutes in his preaching, almost all of what he did was thank God for his goodness. For the joy he had had in that wedding and that marriage, for their wonderful daughter, for the privilege of service, for the prospect of reunion and resurrection glory on the last day, for the sheer wisdom of God who knows best because he's trustworthy. He thanked God. And I tell you, in Jesus' name, that is normal Christianity. Anything less is subnormal.
That's the first part of this song. There is a second part. But we'll handle the second part much more quickly. Verses 11 to 17. There is renewed anticipation of the God who helps us. Trouble, you see, is still around. This does not mean that verses 1 to 10 are false. Rather, David recognizes that in this broken world, there may be on occasion real and wonderful deliverance. God may take us out of the slimy pit. But such deliverance, as glorious as it may be, is not final. Just because you've been healed from cancer does not mean you won't suffer from Alzheimer's. Just because you escaped death in a traffic accident does not mean you won't get cancer. Just because you're crippled with rheumatoid arthritis does not mean your child may not die in a traffic accident. And those are only the vicissitudes of physical life. There may also be struggles of the soul and and times of depression and, and painful relationships and so on as well. This is a damned world. We're under the curse. As glorious as this world is on so many fronts, as many signs as there are of common grace, at the end of the day, if you live long enough, you will suffer. The only alternative is not living long enough. The ultimate end is either you will bereave someone or you will be bereaved. Those are the only options. And David knows that. And so having received the grace of God in the past, he now looks to the future and he very carefully says, verse 11, Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. Not just in this one one instance. And then he lists the domains in which he's going to continue to need help and protection. Number one. God helps in the arena of personal sin. Verse 12. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails within me. He may even be returning to the quicksand imagery. I'm I'm failing. I'm sliding away and I'm drowning in my own sin. I, I, I can't see. You know, the fact remains that it's often the most mature believers who sometimes feel like that. Because as you get closer to God and see Him in His holiness and how wonderful and loving He is, you, you see how inconsistent and sometimes sleazy and corrupt we are. Those of us who are Christians, we, we, we know that we are accepted before God because of the cross work of Christ. We know that. Sometimes we've walked with Christ for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. And we're having our devotions and we're reading the Bible and the more we see of the glory of God and the more we are grateful to God for Himself, we may at some point be afforded such a spectacular view of God, a bit like Isaiah, Isaiah 6. 
that we end up saying, woe is me, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. We're amazed that God can have anything to do with us. David is old enough in the Lord to know that sometimes he feels as if he's drowning in his failures and sins. My sins have overtaken me, I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, my heart fails me. I need help there, Lord. And second, God helps me in the arena of bitter enemies, verses 13 to 15. They don't have the right to take advantage of his fall. So although his own sin discourages David, the smug attacks of his enemies around him arm him with a, a kind of sense of injustice. And surely something of his, his resilience lies here that he sees this and he, he, he trusts his case to the Lord. May those who say to me, aha, aha, be appalled at their own shame. You don't go through life without sometimes being attacked in vicious ways. Sometimes all you can do, all you want to do, all you should do, is commit yourself to the grace of God. And then third, God helps all who seek Him. That is, all who seek God's glory. Verse 16, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. You see, to compare what I am with what you are, with what God is, is a steadying thing. To pray for God's glory in the midst of our struggle is in fact a form of liberation. It's the way of victory. And in fact, it's the way Jesus himself went when he is heading for the cross in John chapter 12. His prayer is, glorify your name, glorify your name. So may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. In Hebrew, that's just two words. You want to learn some Hebrew? Yigdal Yahweh. Yigdal Yahweh, sometimes rendered here, the Lord is great, or may the Lord be exalted. It's, it's the same Hebrew expression, Yigdal Yahweh. Say it out loud, Yigdal Yahweh. Again, Yigdal Yahweh. Write it out on a little card. Put it on the mirror in your bathroom. Put it in your wallet. It's not an incantation. It's not a bit of magic. But we need our reminders in the midst of good times as in bad. Yigdal Yahweh. Regardless of our circumstances, the Lord is great. May the Lord be exalted. And then he ends up quite simply. God helps even me. Verse 17. As for me, I am poor and needy. Oh, the Lord is great. But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. Let us pray.
In truth, Lord God, you know us through and through. You know when we stand up and when we sit down, before a thought is in our head, you know it. How blessed we are to come before you this morning. So many hundreds here who are brothers and sisters in Christ, drawn together by the commonality of sins forgiven, receiving the Spirit as the down payment of the promised inheritance, with one common hope and aspiration, the new heavens and the new earth, the home of righteousness, growing in our distaste for all things sleazy and sinful, growing in our love for the glory of our Master. We confess that for many of us, our lines have fallen in pleasant places. We may be going through a period of time when things are going great, thank you. And we give you thanks for that too. But we confess, if we've lived for a while, that sometimes we have gone through deep waters. And as we read scripture and look around us in history, we also see that there are times ahead when sooner or later we will face hard, hard things. And now in advance, we resolve to turn to you and say, Yigdal Yahweh, regardless of the circumstances, may the Lord be exalted. The Lord is great. And whether you save us by taking us from miry pits and planting our feet again on firm ground or by adding grace, Lord God, we commit ourselves to you. You alone are God. And we want to be like David in his best moments, like the Lord Jesus in all his moments, with our ears opened so that we say, I have come to do your will, O my God. And for those here this morning, who still do not know what it means to have sins forgiven, who have not yet come to the place where they can say with heart and mouth, Jesus is Lord. We beg of you to have mercy upon them and work by your Spirit in their lives so that even now where they sit, they will pray, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. For Jesus' sake. Amen.